Guys, what's going on? It's part two of episode seven, Ohio versus murder, the Sam Shepard trial. If you're just listening to part two and you didn't listen to part one, you got to go back or you're going to be totally lost. So download part one and then come back and join us here for part two of Ohio versus murder. This episode, we are going to pour through the third and final trial in 2000 up in Cuyahoga County. We're going to talk again with Bill Mason. He was the prosecutor in Cuyahoga County for many terms, um, and he headed up the state's case as the defendant in this civil trial um, in downtown Cleveland. Uh, again, we want to invite you to go uh, sign up for the Broke Man's Beer Mile on Monday, May 29th. That's out east on uh, in eastern Columbus, 1600 Allen Creek Drive. Um, again, brokemans.com and to register for all that stuff, and again, they're making a a great donation to our scholarship fund. We really appreciate that. It's going to be a great day, um, and we look forward to seeing you there. But let's get back into it. We're going to start by talking with Bill Mason. He's just now taken the job of county prosecutor, and this gigantic case is going to take hundreds and hundreds of man hours lands on his desk. Um, you, you prep 58 witnesses, I think I read in the book. Uh, you're planning to read another 47 uh, witness testimonies into evidence. I mean, that's over 100 witnesses. Now, I don't think you end up using, you end up using maybe half of that um, is necessary in the trial. But I mean, talk about, you've done dozens of trials. This is a three-month trial, is that, is that that's right? right, 10 just weeks. The amount of prep that went into this, and I just, you know, as someone who runs his own law office, I mean, I just feel like if I was focusing on one case, that everything else around me would just be, you know, going haywire. You know, I have an advantage, certainly, because I have a large office and I had resources and personnel, so it made it easier. Um, but nonetheless, it was a monster task. Um, there were um, 100 witnesses, and that was 100 witnesses after we had pared it down to who we wanted to use. Right. Uh, after uh, Gilbert put on his, chafe, his uh, case in chief, um, and we thought felt much better about the case. We pared that down a whole bunch too. So um, it was a it's a Herculean task to just to get <laughs> to everybody and try to make sure that everybody was ready to go to trial. And so we divided those witnesses up and made it a little bit easier. And not that you weren't ready for the job, but this is also your first year on this this job. You know, you got you got reelections to worry about. You got to worry about you know getting to know your employees. It just seems like a it was a, kind of came at a bad time for you, really, I would think. If somebody's yeah, I mean, if you were to plan it, you wouldn't plan it this way. <laughs> I was literally, I was on the job three days when I started reading the files and just trying to acclimate with it, and I tried it a year later. We talked to Bill Mason about the challenges of starting a case, the challenge of, of being the defendant now in a case. It's the city or the state and the county were actually sued. Um, and we talked to him about the difficulties of what he starts with and how he's going to prepare for trial, a trial that will end up lasting three months every day on court TV, every day in the newspapers and on CNN. Reese Shepard, uh, Sam, Sam Maryland's son, files a, a civil suit. What's he alleging in that suit against the state of Ohio and, and the, the uh, Cuyahoga County? Well, in 1996, Sam Reese Shepard filed a lawsuit against the state of Ohio. In the lawsuit, he's alleging that while Sam was incarcerated from 1954 to 1964, that he was wrongfully imprisoned. So he was asking that the state pay the estate 
for the time that he unlawfully served prison time for that homicide. And that was, what, $2 million or something like that, do you remember? Uh, it had an unidentified number. Gotcha. But what they, their demand for uh, uh, damages when we got to that part of the conversation was, you know, $11 million or some crazy number. Right. So what, you know, this is, I always thought this was so fascinating about your book or just about this case. Um, not that it's necessarily a cold case, but you're picking up, what did you start with? I mean, you, you, do you have a file? Is there a box and a warehouse? I mean, this kid, this trial's from 1954, a second trial again in 66, but we're talking about when you take the job in what, 1999? Correct. Um, and w- what do you have to go off at this point? Well, there wasn't a lot. There was a couple banker boxes that uh, the civil division had been working on because it was in motion practice be- before the Ohio Supreme Court. But I, I took office on uh, January 16, 1999. I believe within a few days of that, they brought me the banker boxes, and I started to go through them. When I say brought, there maybe was three of them. So I went <laughs> through them and found what there was to know about it, just trying to get my arms around uh, this case because it was only like three months earlier that the Ohio Supreme Court had sent it back to the trial court for trial. Okay. So you've got a couple of, you basically have to create a new case file with, I'm sure, dozens and dozens of more bankers boxes of re-interviews um, and all, you know, your discovery for the case. I mean, how many prosecutors did you implore that worked directly on this case with you? Do you remember? Certainly. There was uh, Kathleen Martin. She was handling the civil aspect. Steve Dever, who was a chief trial counsel for the prosecutor's office. I used him, those two primarily. Dean Bolin was back up. I'm sure. I, I, I took a class with Dean at, uh, at Cleveland Marshall, so I, okay. I, I've known Dean for years. Yeah, and I had a, a probably about three or probably three law clerks um, who supported all of that. And then we used, uh, in the trial, I used assistant county prosecutors to testify or read old transcripts of testimony into the, uh, into the record. So well, all right. in all, we probably used 50 people, but we really had about six or seven. Primary. Well, right, and some of the, you read in testimony, I mean, it's like I said, 46 years later, a lot of these people had passed or you just could not find them. Um, so you correct. had to read the testimony in in order to get it into the case. Right. There was, if for those who remember, there was two cases before this one. In, in 1954, it was the first criminal case. And in 1966, there was a second criminal case because the Supreme Court had overturned the conviction. So there was two cases. There was testimony from some of the same witnesses. And it was kind of like almost a cat and mouse game of which testimony we were going to use, whether it was from the 54 testimony or the 66 testimony. Yeah, talk about just kind of the difficulty in, in you know, what are some of the obstacles as far as finding, you know, finding the people? Or, or is there anything that you surprised from your attempts to gather the information? I mean, you, I guess you had phone books and internet, but I mean, to track somebody down 46 years later, a lot of these people don't live in Northeast Ohio anymore. No, it, it really was an, an, an intense operation just to find the people who knew the facts. Uh, I had used my investigators. We have probably about nine on staff, but we used them to find our witnesses, to find out if they were alive, where they were, and then uh, if they had something to tell us that they hadn't told anybody before. We asked Bill Mason about the challenge of tracking down some of these witnesses. And one of the people that comes through is from Sam's years in Columbus. And the prosecutor, he's still the prosecutor here, in Franklin County, Ron O'Brien. Ron gets a visit from a hairdresser here who knew Sam through his his third wife. Um, And while at a party, Sam Shepard had given her a signed book. He wrote a book um, following the murder trials. And 
on the title page after signing his name, and we should put a picture of this. Uh, we'll put a picture of it up on the, on the website and on the Instagram. They say on the title page, "Did Sam do it?" Question mark. And he wrote in big capital letters. And Ron O'Brien gave this piece of evidence, and it was discussed at the trial. Um, he wrote in big capital letters, exclamation point, yes. Now, is that a compelling piece of evidence? Probably not. But it's a weird thing to do. Um, she never actually mentioned it. She never gave it to anybody. She didn't want She didn't want to make a big stink about it at the time in the late 60s. But she brings it to the attention of Ron O'Brien, the prosecutor here in Columbus. And he gives that evidence to Bill Mason in his office. It's one of the many things, these new pieces of evidence that will come in the third and final trial of the murder of Marilyn Shepard. Some more of that new evidence is the judge orders that any evidence that the coroner's office has withheld or still has in its possession needs to be released to the estate to Terry Gilbert, the attorney for Sam Reese Shepard. Here we, t- we get a quote, uh, a-, a clip from-, from Terry Gilbert of what they find in Coroner Gerber's stash of remaining evidence. He had suspected that there was still evidence in the coroner's office, even though the official word that was told to us for years was that there was nothing left. But uh, lo and behold, when Judge Suster ordered the release of the evidence, there were over 100 pieces of, of, of evidence still remaining. like the piece of his bloody pants, the blood spot we talked about on the trousers. Um, they take, you know, vaginal smears that they have from Marilyn Shepard, um, pieces of the wall that had blood spots on them, stuff that can be retested, stuff that was never looked at in 66, and stuff that can be retested and new evidence in this new trial that's going to start in January of 2000. Another piece Another piece of that evidence is, is found by Dean Boland, who's a teacher. Myself and Bill Mason both went to Cleveland Marshall College of Law in downtown Cleveland. Um, and Dean was one of my professors, and he's one of the assistant prosecutors on this case. And Dean's looking at a picture of the murder scene. It's twin beds in the, in the room, in the, in the room bedroom in which Marilyn died. And there's a table in between where normally you would see a lamp, but there's no lamp there. Dean Boland surmises, and he looks at some of the blood stains on the pillows, and it looks like the crown of a lamp. And they look through the evidence, and they find that there was an investigation into a missing lamp. Could this be the murder weapon? This new trial in 2000, again, turning up very important pieces of evidence and testimony, and Bill Mason's office runs down the officer, and the person who might have more information about that lamp. Now let's kind of jump back to the third trial when it comes to a murder weapon. You know, you, I read in your book, and uh, Dean Boland makes another appearance here. Um, Dean claims that he's found the murder weapon. He's looking at a picture of the bedroom. There's a, a table kind of in between these where they kind of twin beds, if I remember. In the, and it's a place where you'd normally see a lamp. 
and you guys do some research and you find out that you know the lamp had been sent out it had been sent back to the house after some repairs technically maybe i think he even tracked down the officer who did the original lamp investigation which is another story into itself yeah um talk about you know first of all dean do, do you think he found that murder weapon do you think it was possibly or could have been a lamp that was missing from the scene when the police arrived I'm convinced that Dean uh, was able to put together a strong argument that, yes, there was a lamp that was used uh, to uh, murder Marilyn Shepard. There's a guy by the name of Paul Gerhardt, who was the handyman fix-up guy in the neighborhood, who came to Marilyn's house like um, three days before the homicide and was returning a lamp that he had repaired for her, and she then told him to go upstairs and put it in the bedroom, and he did. Um, so we're pretty certain there's a lamp in it. Um, on the blood stains on one of the pillows in the murder room uh, looks like the harp of a lamp. And Dean made that connection, and we then sent people out on Lorraine Avenue where all the, the, uh, the um, antique shops are to try to see if they could find a, a harp of a lamp that fit it, and we did. Uh, so it's a pretty, I think it's a pretty good argument that exactly it, it was the lamp. And Paul Gerhardt, when we talked to him after... Uh, after the homicide, he was insistent that he put that lamp on the lamp sh on the lamp on the nightstand next to the bed where she was killed. And um, but I don't know what more you need. <laughs> right, and then it's not there. But then you have to track him down, correct? Yeah, he's living down in Atlanta. We were able through uh, Fred Drenkin, who was the lead. He was the patrol officer at the time, but he's the chief of the police now. Fred was still in contact with uh, Paul Gerhardt down in Atlanta. Hmm. Made contact with him. Brought him back up here, got his testimony. Um, yeah, that's there's, a great and there's there's probably ten stories just like that where, right? Wow. And he and he was in bad health, and you know I think you guys wanted to I uh, think they wanted to make sure he had a family member. I think at first they just didn't want him to be involved at all, and I think you know the the book kind of tells the story of how you explained to him, look, this is a really important piece of evidence we think, and we think that you're crucial to this case, and he does actually come up to Cleveland, I think, with his daughter, maybe, and, and, and does testify. Yeah, I believe he actually had his, his daughter still up in the area. He okay. had his daughter fly down, travel with him back here, spend a couple days with him, and then flew him back to Atlanta. As Bill and the Cuyahoga County prosecutors, his team, prepares for this, set, this third and final trial, they decide, and Bill makes a decision quickly after taking office, that in order to get to the truth, he needs to exhume the body of Marilyn Shepard. And this, of course, causes a media, another media storm around the case. Um, but Bill, we talked to him about that decision, all that went into that decision, and why he did finally decide that they needed to dig up her body. So you make the decision, and, and I believe this was in 99, uh, you make the decision to exhume the body of of the victim Marilyn Shepard, um, and you have you have very valid evidentiary reasons to do that. But talk about that decision, uh, maybe some of your reservations or concerns about such decision, and and how you know the press is going to deal with with that kind of you know you have a press conference you have to announce it, um, you know there's going to be a national media is going to descend on that. Just talk about the, that decision process. Well, it was very difficult to come to that conclusion that we needed to do that and. I knew that if I did that, that was going to be like lightning a bomb on this case. That was already a bomb. And uh, so I really thought through it. But, you know, at the end of the day, I believe that we are going to be able to come up with some indisputable evidence that nobody had before. I mean, technology has changed so much since 1954, especially 
in the illegal cases uh, and with that you know with the different types of x-rays and the power x-rays and the dna and all the things that just weren't available um i just knew that we'd have some really good evidence whatever it took us and that's really my attitude wherever that takes us let's let it go but we your, knew it would be good evidence your goal is to get to the truth of the case and and this, you know, having a modern examination really can help with that. Yeah, and it was going, I knew it would it, it would cast out and uh, eliminate some of the myths that had been uh, prop, uh, uh, prophesized by uh, the different attorneys in the past. So just another one weird thing about in the book that I found and looked up some old articles about it, but the, the plaintiff, who's Sam's and Marilyn's son's, Reese Shepard, he makes some odd requests kind of as to what his involvement in the exhumation process would be um, if you remember, do you remember any of his requests of what they were? And, and I'm sure some of those you were not able to, to grant. Yeah, there were, there were some. You know, let me just first say, I mean, Chip, who what he, his nickname as a kid growing up was, this was his mother. And he was a victim of this crime just like a, any other a homicide. So I, while at the same time he's an adversary of the, of the prosecutor's office and the prosecution of this case, I still try to think about him and treat him as a victim. So one of the things that he wanted to do initially, uh, he wanted in in Marilyn's casket was uh, the fetus of the child that was in her at the time, and he wanted to carry the chat the the fetus with him after it was removed from the cemetery over to the um, coroner's office, and we just couldn't do that because obviously it's evidence. Well, right, and I think you know wanting to be alone with the with the body and that kind of stuff. This was a piece of of evidence is that sounds callous to say yeah but but I'm, I'm just some of his requests seemed a little bit odd and i know that you know it's just another element of that exhuming a body that you know i wouldn't think of as a prosecutor you have to deal with but right you just because you're exhuming it doesn't mean that the family's not going to make some some you know requests that you can and cannot grant yeah and it and it you know this everything about this case became um politically j- energized and and exploited and this too was happened the same way i mean i i think i, re, I remember calling uh, terry gilbert the attorney on the other side and told him i was going to do it told him why i was going to do it and and if i recall correctly it was just a like real quietness but i you know just having dealt with him in the courthouse and other things i just kind of thought to myself well i know where this is going well and i think it's kind of a funny juxtaposition between the three trials is that you know the complaint of in the second trial of the first trial is that the media was used against Sam Shepard. Yeah. Um, and then in your trial, it seems that now they're the plaintiffs, but the Shepherds uh, side, they really use, they try to use the media to change the story on your office and in the papers. It's kind of weird how they, in the first trial, they complain about the media. And in your trial in 2000, they really try to use the media, national media, local media um, to really spin that message. It really kind of shows how, how, you know how different those two trials were. Yeah, you're absolutely you're right on it, and that, and they did. They mo- they were using the media at every turn and in every inch they can gain on it, and just put whatever else they wanted out there. Uh, in particular, the day before the trial, they had you know this uh, PBS show that they're airing that was just such a skewed facts of this case. It's a Nova Nova program. Yeah, correct. And it w- and, it, and that was just atypical of how they approached uh, this case.
The media is all over this case. But Terry Gilbert, the attorney for the, uh, Sam Reese Shepard and the Shepard Estate, he's using the media as well. He sets up a show, a Nova, which is still a, a, a great show on PBS. Nova does a program, um, and we'll put a link to it on, on, the, uh, on the website so you can watch it yourself. It's you know a 45-minute or so, 50-minute episode where they analyze all this new DNA evidence. They, re, they re, you know, go over all the stuff in the Sam Shepard trial. But this Nova case was scheduled to air the night before the trial started. And it is incredibly one-sided. We asked Bill Mason, who's on that show very briefly, we asked him about that Nova program and how the media was used in this instance, this third trial, really used against the county. Um, so the night we talked earlier, the night before the trial was originally supposed to begin, I want to say in October of 99, uh, it, it ends up getting continued, doesn't start till January of, of 2000. The, basically the plaintiff side, Sam side, Terry Gilbert, Barry Sheck from the OJ Simpson trial, all these other supposed experts have an episode of Nova, which is still a program they run. It's kind of a scientific based, uh, PBS program. Uh, but the, I watched it this week after reading about it in your book, it really does present a very pro-Shepard perspective of the forensic evidence. There's no, they analyze the evidence through their experts, and there's no response to that. This is just what the evidence says. Just talk about, you know, you probably sat and watched that episode. Just your thoughts about, you know, how Gilbert and the plaintiffs used television, the media, and in particularly that Nova, that Nova uh, episode. Well, it's, it's really funny because I had no idea that stage had been set, and they they, they staged it so it was going to be aired the night before the trial was scheduled to begin. Fortunately, we exhumed Marilyn Shepard, and the trial got pushed until January. So in October, that was the night before trial. And when I, when I watched it, I was like, oh, my God. I mean, <laughs> had this of aired the night before, it certainly would have uh, tainted our jury pool and potentially made our job a little bit higher. But, yeah, it took all the evidence and skewed it in its worst way towards Sam Reese Shepard and his family and how they were treated by uh, Cuyahoga County. And you're, you're in the episode, and I was, we were talking before we started here, you're in for about a minute before, and then, or at the early part, and then about 40 seconds left to go in the episode, they have you back on, you're saying that we feel very strongly about our case, um, and we'll let the truth be the truth, and we'll go from that. I mean, you, and you were, they had some, you know, they had a little bit of Stephanie uh, you know, some meetings that she had with Terry, but that was it. You guys got about two minutes of your story <laughs> and about 52 minutes of, of, Gilbert's, uh, of Gilbert's case. Yeah. Trial begins. We talk, to, we talk to Bill Mason about the jury selection process. We talk about a theory of the case that is discussed a little bit in the first and second trial, um, but that is the theory involving the shepherd's dog, Coco. So you talk about the jury selection process, voir dire, as we call it in, in, in our industry here. Um, you mentioned, and I thought this was really interesting, you, you mentioned that you're looking for as many dog owners as you can find in that jury. Talk about that strategy um, for why you want to have as many dog owners on your jury as you can in this case. Well, uh, the dog, the shepherd dog, uh, was a, 
like one of those dogs that just barked like crazy. When the Coco, wind, I think is that's is it. Coco, that was the name, right? Yeah. Coco. And everybody who I interview talk about the dog who would just bark and bark and bark and bark and bark. <laughs> and so I have dogs, and I understand what that means. I mean, that's what they do, and that's. So when I was looking for jurors, I was really looking for dog owners because they would understand that connection between the dog and how a dog treats its owner. Um, and, and the whole theory being that we, when the testament went on, nobody ever talked about the dog. Where was the dog? You know, and no, the dog wasn't barking, getting in the way of anything. And that was a missing piece, if you ask me, because that just told me that the dog was comfortable with who was in the house. Right. It, the, the idea that if there's an intruder at 3 in the morning, the dog is going to make some noise. You know, the dog's going to make noise. It's going to wake up Sam, the Sam Reese chip. Um, it's going to wake up, you know, could possibly wake up neighbors or at least give you testimony to say, yeah, I did hear the dog barking last night. And that's absent from this case. Completely absent. Yeah. yeah. It's a great scene in the book. Bill, uh, in his book, Dr. Sam Shepard on Trial, discusses his drive-in to go to the opening, to go to the opening statements. Um, his drive-in from his home into downtown Cleveland. It was a snowy January day, like we talk about. It's the day after. Let's get into this actual trial. Um, you know, we're looking. It's it's January of 2000. You tell a great little story about just kind of your drive. Where are you living in, in Cleveland then? Are you on the west side? or? or uh, I grew up in Parma, and I'm still in that area. Okay. So, you're, But you're driving in. You're talking. You're driving behind all these television trucks. It's snowy January, Cleveland. I, the, I really like that part of the book of your drive-in, like, oh, geez, this is going to be bigger than I thought. Yeah, you know, actually, the, if, the night before that the trial began it was the Super Bowl. And I, I believe the St. Louis Rams were playing, don't remember I think who. it would have been the Titans. The Titans, that's yeah. right. And so I don't ever miss those, but I was in the office the whole time uh, watching you missed it. That? that was a great Super Bowl. It, it was. You I saw that, yeah. Okay. He, he reached his arm out and was like a foot short of the gold line. Yeah. It was just a classic ending. <laughs> but I didn't watch it. I saw the replay. Oh, that's the sacrifice that you made for this case. <laughs> yeah. But anyway, it, it was. And there, was, there were TV trucks everywhere. I yeah. mean, and there were reporters from all over the world. And they were set up all around the Justice Center. And as I pulled in, I was just, it was kind of like, Wow, this is this is it. This is the big leagues. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, yeah, Court TV. I think they they ran the trial pretty much twenty four seven. It's there's still Court TV. You still have trials, but this is just a few years after the OJ Simpson trial, where people there's still real hunger to watch in court lawyers' arguments, witnesses at this time. And Court TV's had enough. I don't know anything about their ratings now, but I know they had great ratings back then. I'm. And you guys were their main story for that entire winter. Yeah, no question. And and uh, it was the whole winter. Uh, and it was it, it was almost like a football game because after the day's testimony, depending on what happened in court that they you know they one of the one of the personnel from court T would come and say hey, they'd like you to come down and talk like, like and they, we all did it yeah you had to drag the coach out there after the the win or the loss yeah and it was it was like it, it was as I look back on it now I say that was crazy. <laughs> opening statement he wants to focus on the same thing he focuses on at the end of the case he wants to focus on Marilyn too much of this case he says is about Dr. Sam Shepard when the real victim here 
besides Sam Reese Shepherd, obviously, who lost his mother and the family, the Shepherds and, 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 and Marilyn's family. But Marilyn Shepherd is the forgotten victim in this case, much like Nicole Brown uh, Simpson. You know, we talk in Ronald Goldman, we talk about OJ, OJ, OJ. We forget sometimes that there are victims, real people, people with families that are lost here. And he focuses on that. And since he's the defense counsel now, instead of being like he's used to being the the prosecutor, the plaintiff, he goes second. And he sees that Terry Gilbert, who had a, a long opening statement, may have worn the jury down a little bit. And he decides to use a tactic. He decides to show the jury, put in their mind what it was like for someone to get hit 27 times. Another interesting thing you do in your opening statement um, that you describe in the book is, and I, I think in the book you describe it, you know, you, you go second, which is a little different for, for uh, a prosecutor. It's, you guys are kind of the defendant here. Right. Um, and we didn't really talk about that switch. But that means that you go second in, in an opening statement. Um, and you notice it's probably, you know, Gilbert's gone on for a few hours. You're up. You notice the jury's eyes are a little glazed over. Um, and you decide that you got your notes in your hand to, to smack your palm 27 times, which is the number of times Marilyn was struck um, in the head. Talk, when did you come up with that idea? Do you think it was effective um, or was it at least effective to wake them up? Well, it was a little bit of all of that, but my point originally in doing, and I thought about it a couple of days before, is that I wanted to drive home the point of the victim, what the victim was feeling and how long that pain and those, that beating took place. I mean, 27 blows to the head is what I was really trying to drive home to them and make them hear and see. And um, I thought it was effective. In fact, one of the, uh, Tom Barris, who was Channel 3 News, came up to me that evening and said, he said, oh, I really loved that dramatic pounding on the hand and I said Tom it really wasn't for that purpose it was to let them know that there's a victim who got hit 27 times and how long that took and how much pain she was in so maybe it, maybe it had an impact and it's if the case wasn't big enough already Terry Gilbert and, and the Reese uh, the Sam Reese Shepherd, they call their first witness and it's F. Lee Bailey a couple years a famous lawyer a couple years fresh off defending and getting O.J. Simpson acquitted of, of double murder, F. Lee Bailey takes the stand, and they question him about this theory they used in the 1966 case. That theory we didn't talk about earlier, but that their friends, the Halks, the mayor, and his wife were somehow culpable in this murder. They're the first people Sam Shepard calls, he's, he's, uh, his story goes, and they come over. They're actually there before the police are there. There's not a lot of evidence to in the, implicate the Halks, I don't believe. Um, and they attack F. Lee Bailey on this theory. How did they come up with this theory? Does he still believe this 1966 theory F. Lee Bailey has of the murder? Just talk about how effective he was, I think, in really discrediting uh, F. Lee Bailey's theories on the 66 case, what F. Lee Bailey really thinks happened, and how you guys, I think, tear him to shreds. Yeah, Steve's a really talented trial lawyer, and he was perfect on Ethley Bailey. And Ethley Bailey's a great guy. I mean, he's, he's very personal. You yeah, like him. And, and, and Steve treated him that way for the first 15, 20 minutes of talking with him and questioning him, it, just like Ethley would have done to somebody else and got the confidence of him, and then let him give his theory about what happened. And then Steve turned to the evidence that we had. And Ethley Bailey had a uh, co-counsel. We had gone out to... Uh, co-counsel's 
uh, officers, talked to him about the case. He gave us boxes of correspondence between Effley Bailey and him, and they're talking strategy. And in the strategy, they're talking, hey, we need to find somebody. We got to come, we got to point blame on somebody. And it's in these correspondences, go back and forth. And then the, the classic line of all classics, I remember it like it was yesterday. Steve asks him, well, where'd you come up with the idea that the Hawks were the, the, um, <laughs> were the, the killers? House, were they the neighbors? They were the mayor and the neighbor. Yeah. And uh, he said, said on page like 133 of uh, whatever the author's name book was and we were just like stunned we said that's where you came up with the theory that the Hawks committed the homicide he said yeah justice in the second trial the shepherd side tries to show that someone else committed the murder they used that same method in 2000 and a man named Richard Eberling a man who was convicted of murder he murdered an older woman in the early 80s that he was a caretaker for um and he was known as a thief, and he had worked in the Shepherd House. And in fact, he had worked in the Shepherd House as a um, as a window washer, and he was ultimately an interior decorator in the Cleveland area. But he had been in the house around the time of the murder. And the theory is that he was taken with Marilyn Shepherd, and he committed this brutal crime, um, a crime of passion, as he went to either attack Marilyn or break or steal things from the house or both. There's some merit to the Everling theory, and there's also some, some facts about the Everling thing that do not wash out. But all, that's, all these theories that Richard Everling is the killer, they're all fleshed out in this third and final trial with Bill Mason. Oh, and Bailey comes out in the middle and says, yeah, it was her, I can't, I can't remember the author's name, but a famous book about the Sam Shepard case, and she kind of comes up with this theory, and so Bailey rides with it in, in 66 and really, I mean, and that's the problem is if you're, they need to find another killer. And it kind of points us towards uh, what happens in 2000. It's no longer the Hawks. Now they're starting to point their finger at another individual, uh, a Richard Eberling. Um, yeah. And kind of what were your main reasons that Eberling is not a viable uh, a suspect? And, and we talked a little bit earlier about, you know, who Richard Eberling was and what role he could or could not have played in this. Um, but he's deceased at the time. He's in jail. He dies in jail after a, a murder of an older woman that he was a caretaker for. But they used the same F. Lee Bailey strategy in 66 and 2000 to say, hey, it wasn't Sam. It was this guy over here. Yeah, it, it really was. I mean, and, and it almost became a shotgun approach as to who it wasn't Sam, but it was somebody else. And Richard Eberling did not fit this crime. He didn't fit in a lot of ways because he was really but what I would call a sneak thief back in the 50s. He, was, he broke into houses and ro uh, burglarized homes. That's what he did. And uh, he, he didn't have any really interaction with the Shepherds except Sam Shepherd's brother. He used him like to clean the windows or something at Sam Shepherd's brother's house. And the reason he got pulled into this picture was uh, like in around 1960, I don't know the exact day, 59 or 60, he was arrested by uh, maybe Fairview Park Police, and he um, admitted to having Marilyn Shepard's rings and jewelry. And they're like, well, how'd you get it? And it was, well, he was cleaning the house or the windows of the house. They weren't home. He went in and stole uh, Marilyn Shepard's things out of the closet. And that made him the target of the, that where, where all the arrows pointed after that. Interesting. So you have an FBI witness, uh, FBI agent who comes in. And this is, you know, not just his testimony, but your expertise in doing, in doing big trials like this and seeing murder scenes. And um, he says that this is all the hallmarks of a domestic violence case. And you've mentioned that before in this interview that you thought it was a domestic violence, a DV gone wrong. Um, 
what are the elements of a, of a domestic violence murder and, and what makes his testimony, which I thought was very compelling in the case, um, what makes you think that as well? Well, there's a couple things. Um, it, it was starting at Bay Village back then. There's a you know a few hundred homes in the community, very quiet, very safe place. Those aren't normally the locations of um, a, a nasty break-in murder takes place. Um, if somebody gets killed in those kind of settings, it's usually because somebody who knows them very closely. Uh, the type of the crime that it was was at home, you know, um, just a lot of different things. And then the staging of the crime, the actual... Um, the, the staging of the house, and I, I and I, I am convinced that somebody just did it, poured boxes over to make it look like that happened. And and, I, and people say, oh, why would somebody do that? And I'm always like, these guys are doctors. Mm-hmm. They're not crime scene experts in any kind of way, and they were doing what they could to make it look like somebody entered the home. But there was no signs of forced entry. Um, now we've we talked about how in '66 some of this uh, Kirk's testimony about the blood spatter. Uh, kind of went un, you know, unchallenged by the, the prosecution in that case. Now we have a whole other era. We have a bunch of science. We can look at some more of this blood spatter evidence, as old as it is, and it's, I think, slightly unreliable due to its age. But talk about how your team attacked their experts. You know, we'll put a link up to that Nova episode on the website if people want to watch it. Um, but you have to attack their, their theories on the blood spatter, which, again, are all pointing to it not being Sam. Yeah, uh, we made a calculated decision that no matter what theory they had and no matter how ridiculous we thought it was, we were going to bring an expert witness in to challenge their assertions, and we did that. Well, I I think it it was effective in that case as well. Their expert, you know, talking about how it didn't work for them, their expert comes on, and somehow I want to say it was was, uh, Steve who was crossing him again, their expert didn't know Richard Eberling's blood type. Yeah. And I thought that was really odd that this kind of idea of we don't really care who it is, we just want to just put cast some doubt out there. But he asked me, you worked on this case for 200 hours and you don't know the alleged killer's blood type? Uh, the guy had no answer for it. I just thought that was such a great, just really back to it. And that, that and, kind and, of stuff and, plays with the jury. And it was key, too, because this was the DNA guy in the United States at the time. He was Mr. Uh, Dr. Tahir. Yeah. Um, he, he was in the, the Nova guy. Episode too. He's the guy. And uh, what, he, uh, what he knew or didn't think about was, you know, this DNA is all sophisticated. Everybody goes that way now. But there's some very simple things. <laughs> you know, some people are A. Some people are O. Some people are AO, whatever. But you can't be both. Um, and Steve went through a, a, great, a great little questioning of him asking him the blood type. And it was all about the blood type on the pants. And I don't know if it was an A or an O, but nonetheless, they went through it and they yeah, typed, o, they typed yeah. the blood. I think it was a, they typed it as an O on the blood pant of, that was examined and tested after 20 years later. And then he asked them if it was that type. And they said, did you know that Richard Eberling was an O? <laughs> and it was, it was like uh, he was just stunned. talked about earlier sam's trousers it's all he's wearing is one blood spot on the trousers his shirt is missing it's never found uh, much like the murder weapon we asked bill 
about these issues um, and how they came up in the third trial, about the T-shirt, about the trousers, um, and about how Sam Shepard didn't seem to have enough blood on him when he was when the investigators came in the morning. Um, you know, the Shepard team kind of focuses on the fact that, and this goes back to you know again a little bit of your research into the '54 crime, but they focus that Sam's trousers had you know one blood spot on him. Uh, he didn't have any blood on his body. He wasn't. There's no. Uh, he wasn't wearing a shirt. He says in the morning. Uh, did we ever find this white T-shirt that he claimed to be sleeping in? I mean, it's we don't we don't know what happened with that, right? No, never ever uh, had a good excuse for where it was at or found it. Um, I mean, as as the evidence went, it was pretty clear that he fell asleep that night with that T-shirt on. It was a cool July third night. He had a white T-shirt on. Everybody testified to that. But the morning on which the, when the police arrived, he had no T-shirt on. He was wet, and it was his claim that he went down to the bluff and the beach and got into a struggle with somebody, but never had an explanation. It wasn't like the guy beat him up and took his shirt off and ran with it. <laughs> you know, he never told us that. But, yeah, there was never an explanation of what his shirt was. And I surmise is that that shirt would have been full of blood spatter had it been found. That brings us to a really important piece of evidence. The watch, Sam Shepard's watch that he was wearing, his watch that was found at the scene, a watch that he admits to having on the night he went to sleep, um, and again when when the investigators come in the morning and peruse the scene around the lake and around the house. The watch had blood spatter in it, and that blood spatter is able to be tested Experts are brought in on both sides to discuss the watch, and we asked Bill what his side determined about the watch and why it was such an important piece of evidence in this third trial, the civil trial in 2000. Your experts conclude that the blood spatter in Sam's watch, you know, another key piece of evidence, I think, in this case, Sam's watch, you know, that basically it couldn't have gotten inside unless it was a certain amount, you know, it had to be close enough to the victim from the bludgeoning. Talk about just talk about the watch, its significance in the case, um, and how it played a role in your trial. Well, it was very the watch to me that that's the key piece of evidence in my opinion. Uh, Sam had his watch on that night when he fell asleep on the day bed or the couch before he went to bed that evening. Um, when he told the police his first and second stories that he told the police, he said he had his watch on that night before he, when he fell asleep. When the police went and found uh, started. Um, investigating the crime scene they found his watch down on the steps going down to the beach uh, and it had blood on it and so um, Sam always said that the watch was on it and, the, and the, what's, what's key about the watch is the experts testified that wherever that watch was and those blood spatters that were on the watch uh, they said without with certainty that watch had to be within two feet of the blood flying from where it was flying from and Sam put the watch on himself so it was pretty there was no other way for that blood spatter to get on the watch, but if it was on his rich, then he was causing the harm to Maryland. One thing people always struggled with, and myself included, um, was motive. That's what made this trial so appealing to the media and to newspaper readers and viewers and everyone. The Sam Shepard trial is why would someone do this? Why would this doctor who has a nice car and throws the football around with Browns quarterback Otto Graham and has the nice house and the, and the beautiful family. He seems to have it all. What's his motive? Why would he do this to his four-month pregnant wife? It's an issue that even 46 years later at this trial, 
Bill Mason has to tackle. Because the jury's going to be thinking about it. We ask him about what he thinks the motive is, what he thinks happened in this case. And again, you know, we spoke almost exclusively with the prosecutors. We tried to lay out as much of the evidence, which goes, I think, both ways, you know, in this case. Um, but we asked Bill, I just had to ask him, what do you think happened? What do you think Sam's motive is here? Because even though you, you're not trying this case based on motive, um, you know, in your closing argument, you do talk about that that he did have a motive. And that, that's always been the idea is that why would this successful doctor with this great family and this great job and this great house overlooking the lake, why would he do something like somebody with no history of violence? Um, why would he do something? He had everything going for him. But you do have to create a little bit of a motive for the jury. Talk about what you think Sam's motive would have been. Well, as we went back and learned uh, everything about Sam Shepard, everything about his family, his life, his lifestyle, um, it was pretty clear to me that Sam was a womanizer. He had girlfriends, um, you know, constantly had different women he was seeing. Across the country, really. Yeah, and, and it really, it was everywhere. It was in town. I believe Marilyn knew that. Marilyn put up with it for as much as she could, but hated it. They had such a strained marital relationship. Uh, shortly before the um, the homicide, uh, Marilyn came told Sam that she was pregnant with a new child. He didn't want another child. We brought one of the doctors in from their hospital to say that one day when they were scrubbing up that he was complaining about another child and was unhappy about it. And I think he said, that's what happens when you don't wear a condom. I yes, like that was his quote, instead absolutely. Of, instead of, oh, thanks, congratulations. <laughs> yeah, and, and there was this, so there's a strange, strained relationship. They're going through. She's pregnant. He doesn't want another child. They're, they had a, a like a party then in the week before celebrating this, and it was just something he didn't want to be going on in his life. And I think that night he had his friends over. The Hawks, those in the Hawks, the Hawks were over the night before. Uh, they're drinking. He falls asleep on the couch. They leave. Marilyn goes up to bed. I believe what happened is he went up to bed, wanted to have a sexual relationship with her. She rejected him, and he went. He lost it. And he used the lamp that was sitting on the nightstand to bludgeon her to death. And the jury comes in. They're only, they're only out after jury instructions for a couple of hours. Bill's phone rings. It's the bailiff. And he calls him to tell him he needs to get back to the courthouse because they're ready to make a decision. And the jury is out. You finish, I think, in the morning. And by 3 o'clock in the afternoon, 2 o'clock, something like that, the bailiff calls and says that the jury's come back. It, it really took them less than one day. Is that right? It took them about an hour. Wow. So how do you feel about I, I, I would think I would, I would feel confident if I were you. But, I mean, I guess what did the short deliberation, how did that make you feel when you got that call? Were you worried? Were you happy? Did well, it you know it was a lump in your throat immediately, and normally as the prosecutor, when they come back quick like that, that's good for the prosecution. But we were in a different role in this. We were the defense, and so we didn't know. I we didn't really know. I felt when we were done with that evidence, I felt very good about what um, what we had established. I didn't think there was any way that they can prove that Sam was innocent, you know. And so I felt pretty comfortable that where we were going, but you don't know. jury rules 
that the state of Ohio, Cuyahoga County, is not responsible for the wrongful imprisonment of Sam Shepard. By a preponderance of the evidence, Terry Gilbert in the Shepard estate is not able to show that Sam was falsely accused, that Sam was not the murderer. Is it a conviction outright that Sam was the murderer? You have to make that determination. The very nature of the ruling, the nature of a civil case, doesn't lend itself to the court making that determination. We talked to to Bill about what he found out from the jurors after the verdict. It was. It was a big moment for me. Obviously, it had a big trial, and we came back. It came back the way we'd like it to come back. But more importantly, um, I really thought that the public needed a, a thorough airing on what this case was all about. And that's what we tried to do. Of course, we had an objective, but we wanted to put it all out there, lay out the real facts, because it's been, it was 30 years of people saying things, stretching things, and making innuendos about the evidence. And this was a good time to air it all out, let the public decide, and let a jury say what it was. Um, did you talk with the jury afterwards? I mean, you mentioned in your book that, uh, that they did think the fact that Coco wasn't barking was very compelling. Like your dog owner jury, your, your theory, your strategy there worked. Yeah, I mean, it, it, the evidence was good. That was certainly part of the verdict. But um, what was more interesting to me than that was um, I didn't talk to all of them. I think I got the nine, maybe eight of them. But they said, without a doubt, if the question being posed to them was if Sam was being tried on a criminal case, would you have convicted him of murder? They said they would have. From Garfield's tomb to the serpent mound From the big cities to the river towns First in flight making history There's so many books you need to see I like reading And I like reading Tippecanoe and Tyler too From the Queen City to Lake Erie Blue Edison and a man on the moon so many books, which will we choose? I like reading I like reading today is Dr. Sam Shepard on Trial. It's by Jack Desario and William D. Mason, our guest from today's show. It's written in 2003. It's about 400 pages. Um... And it's a recount of not just the third trial. It also goes into all the stuff that went on in the first and second trial. It's a great synopsis of the case um, of, you know, one of the trials of the century and the biggest murder trial I think the state of Ohio has ever seen. They got to see it three times. It's like a movie with bad sequels like Fast and the Furious 8. Um, But Bill goes through that trial, the preparation the evidence for and against, um, and makes his conclusion that he believes Sam Shepard is guilty of the murder of his wife, Marilyn Shepard. That's Bill's feeling. That's the book, the book's ultimate decision. Um, Sam basically, I guess you could say, lost two of the three trials. Um, but it's not something that we're here today on episode seven, Ohio versus murder. We're not going to make that decision for you. We want to hear from you. What do you think happened? Do you think Sam Shepard did it? Hit us up on Facebook, Ohio v. The World. 
Our email is ohiovtheworld at gmail.com if you want to talk about the Sam Shepard case, if you have questions for me. Um, if you think I gave a too one-sided view of these, of, these, uh, of these trials in this case, let me know. We love, we always get back to everybody. Um, so, you know, let us know about that. You can always listen to the show, rate and review us. If you like the podcast, even if you think I'm an idiot, um, I want to hear from you on iTunes. Rate and review the show. Um, that helps us move us up in the rankings, uh, and helps more and more people find the show when they're searching for, for content on iTunes and on Stitcher. And of course you can listen to us on SoundCloud. All our episodes are there, um, soundcloud.com backslash Ohio V the world. That's going to do it for today. Um, we had an awesome time. Again, we want to remind you, uh, drink some burial beer. If you're ever down in Asheville, they've got, I think, one of the best breweries in the country, um, Burial Beer Co., BurialBeer.com. Check them out. Also, sign up for the Broke Man's Beer Mile. Uh, that is on Memorial Day in Columbus, 1600 Allen Creek Drive. Um, it's in the morning into the early afternoon, and our friends from Land Grant Brewery will actually be providing the beer for that event. Um, we had Land Grant was our our beer for the last episode, um, which was Ohio versus War. Go back and listen to that one about um, about a great event in Columbus in 1998. Um, but again, Land Grant will be there. It's the Broke Man's Beer Mile. Sign up for it on brokemans.com. Uh, they're a running company. They host marathons all over the state um, at a fraction of the cost. You know, you get a Beer Mile t-shirt. Um, you get the beer, race photos, snacks, um, all that stuff. So they, they even have medals for the people who, fin- who finished the beer mile. Um, anyways, awesome time today. Sorry it's such a long podcast. There's so much to get into and unwrap in this case. We have to thank Bill Mason. Um, he's now working up at, uh, he just got named actually the managing partner of Bricker and Eckler up in Cleveland, a great, a great law firm here in the state of Ohio. Um, so congrats to Bill on that. I want to thank his uh, his staff who helped us set up that interview. My friend uh, Melinda, his niece, who helped me uh, hook up with Bill. And and again, read that book. Uh, I actually read it on Audible. It's on Audible.com. So if you do books on tape, uh, you can download that one because it's about 400 pages, and it's nice to have someone read it to you sometimes when you're driving around. Um, and listen to our show in your car. So download us, subscribe on iTunes, um, or subscribe on Stitcher. And as soon as we have a new episode. It'll pop right up in your feed. So we've got a couple of new shows. Interviews are done. We'll release two new shows, Episodes 8, uh, which is Ohio versus Flight, and Episode 9, Ohio versus Jim Crow. Those episodes are very close to being done, so we should be able to have one, uh, again, another one for you here in the next week or two, and then another one after that a week or two later. Um, again, episode or uh, Season 1 is going to be probably, it looks like, 14 episodes. We'll take a little break, we'll have another launch party, and we'll get into Season 2. Um, thanks again, our help with the Ohio History Connection, our people over there have been awesome, um, so go check them out, uh, in downtown, or just outside of downtown Columbus, uh, formerly the Ohio Historical Society, um, and they're doing great work over there, um, and they are big fans of the podcast, and we want people to, to know that there's an amazing place in Ohio that you can get all your history from um, and look them up. They've got the museum, but you can look them up very easy. 
www.ohiohistory.org. Thanks again to everybody uh, who's getting after us on Facebook and getting back with us and listening to the show and telling their friends about it. Um, and a special thanks, of course, to our theme music for Season 1. It's the song Try by our friends Forrest and the Evergreens, a great band here in Columbus. Uh, they just played a show last night in Newark at the new 31 West. Um, and go to forcetheevergreens.com to check out their new shows, listen to their album Young Funk. Um, we will see you guys in probably less than two weeks. We'll be back with Episode 8, Ohio versus Flight. We're going to look at the Wright brothers, and we're going to finally settle the debate of whether Ohio or North Carolina is first in flight. Again, that'll do it. Thank you guys so much for listening to both parts of Episode 7, Ohio versus Murder. Um, we're going to try and do one of these kind of true crime, murder porn kind of episodes uh, every single uh, every season. So if you know of a great Ohio case, a criminal case, a murder, whatever it is that you want us to look at, um, you can always, like I said, email us at ohiovtheworld at gmail.com. Or you can always check us out on Instagram at Ohio V the World Podcast. Or obviously, we're always having a discussion on Facebook at Ohio V the World. So look us up, like our page, or just go to our website. That's the easiest way to find episodes. Um, Ohio V the World Podcast.com. Thanks again. We will see you guys next week. They were encouraged and indeed made signatory to a complete whitewash of perhaps the worst investigation in the history of American crime. I think it's an awful shame. Well, I would have been eliminated. You feel that they would have fired on you if you'd Oh, I know that. I'm sure of this. She rejected him and he went, he lost it. And he used the lamp that was sitting on the nightstand to bludgeon her. The Battle of Waterloo was one of the most famous turning points in world history. But what happened next? My name's David Montgomery, and I'm the host of The Siecla, a history podcast that tackles exactly that. Join me as I cover France's overlooked century in between Napoleon and World War I. The Siecla, spelled S-I-E-C-L-E, is part of the Evergreen Podcast Network and can be found wherever you get podcasts.